chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And as you turn there, I'll open up in prayer. Father, we give this time over to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we could just uh, celebrate and song, um, you know, who you are, Father. Um, and a lot of times in our lives, it's even hard to do that because of the pressures and things that's going on in and around us. Um, but like Keith mentioned, Lord, it's, the Psalms especially are full of the psalmist, David, or Asaph, or these other guys where they say, Praise the Lord, O my soul. They just speak to themselves because they know it's the right thing to do even though the whole rest of their body wants to collapse under the pressure and wants to be anxious. So Father, I thank you that we can come before you and do that. We pray, Lord, that uh, it was pleasing to you, Lord. And um, Father, sometimes, even that last song, I'm trading my sorrows. Um, I pray, Lord, uh, sometimes it's a little more difficult than just a real quick mental trade-off. And so I pray, Lord, if people are struggling with that, Father, um, that they would truly be seeking your heart on that, Lord. And... um, put themselves in position where it's a reality where they don't have to own and carry a lot of stuff, where there's freedom in you. And Lord, we just ask for your help this morning, Lord, um, to talk about uh, these issues, Lord, of, of sin and relationships and marriage, God. Um, we want to understand your truth. We don't want to compromise it, but we also want to be known by our love. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use us, that you would speak to us, and that you would speak through me, Lord, and it wouldn't be, um, that wouldn't taint the message and get in the way. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we're going to cover some more stuff with, and, and I think this would be our last Sunday with it, um, same-sex marriage, uh, homosexuality, uh, sin, um, you know, our country, all kinds of stuff. So this, we're going to try and tie together some of uh, last week, and um, we'll get to what we can get to this week, and we'll see how far we get. Um, so I wrote down a few things, so I didn't miss it from last week, because I know some people missed it, and they were really curious, and um, the recording didn't really come out, so I'll try and hit some of that, and then we'll go. Um, our focus last time was to clearly identify what God says about sexual, homosexuality. That was our focus last time. Like, what does God say about homosexuality? What exactly is this? Because it's, it's pretty much ambiguous and clouded and not real clear, depending upon where you go and who you talk to and where you get information from. And so what we did is we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, and um, we looked at a passage there, as, uh, verses uh, 8 through 20. And um, the reason we picked that passage is because the focus... Um, was identifying the types of behaviors and sins that God says, hey, not cool. In fact, he doesn't, he doesn't use the word not cool. That, that's not what he said. He said, um, those that practice these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's, that's strong. Like, so not cool is like, that's not strong enough. He used strong like, he's like, they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven if people are doing this stuff. Uh, sure. That's okay, go for it. So we're starting there. So we're starting with Christian lesbians. So here we go. So 
what is the deal and how does it work? Now, it's a good question. Because really at the root of it is, the question is, um, can somebody be a, and I'm going I'm to use, use, choose this word very carefully for, on purpose. Can somebody be a practicing homosexual and still be a committed Christian? That's the question at the heart of what she's saying, right? So can someone be a practicing homosexual and then also be a committed Christian? So let me ask one more question to help out. Um, can someone be a practicing thief and be a committed Christian? So can somebody be a practicing and habitual liar and also be a committed Christian? Can somebody be a habitual lustful person that treats men or women, whoever you are, you know, as property and can't get enough and is physically engaged in that all the time and still be a committed Christian. That's why we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 last week is because all of those things in that passage, like homosexuality is just another sin. It's what it is. And that's why in that passage they list a whole bunch of other ones. And they talk about, um, or Paul talks about, you know, uh, being harsh and being selfish and being uh, angry. And, and he lists that whole thing. And homosexuality is just another one on the list. But what our culture has done is we've turned it into, now somebody is defined by whatever their sexual preference is, and they get all of their identity from under that. Um, and that's silly. People are worth so much more than that. They're worth so much more than that. Now, the reason why I chose that wording very carefully, can somebody be a practicing homosexual? So, let's change it. Can somebody be, I'm just going to put in quotations, can somebody be a homosexual and still be a Christian? And I put in quotations because I'm referring to homosexuality like somebody struggling with it. It's a real live struggle within them, but they realize God has called them to something else, and they're striving after that, heterosexuality. So can somebody be, in quotations, homosexual, or I probably should say struggling with homosexuality and be a Christian? And that answer is yes, absolutely. Because in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 6, all the, we'll just go there real quick. Right? We'll, just, we'll just look there real quick. Well, hold on one second. We'll go there real quick. So on 1 Corinthians 6, if you take a look in that list, I'll just read them off. You don't even have to turn there. It says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That's not just homosexuals. That's anybody sexually immoral. Um, adulterers. Then he talks about male prostitutes, sexual offenders. Thieves. Greedy. Drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, shysters, right, extortioners, right? All these things are listed underneath. So, we all have or are struggling with those sins. Idolatry, selfishness, greed, like we are all in the same boat struggling with those things. We all are. We're struggling with them, but the difference 
hopefully for the Christian, like we're all guilty. That's already a done deal. It's not like you get, become a Christian and are like, oh yeah, that's not, uh, you know, I never did any of that. The Bible is really clear that we've all fallen short and that we were all born into sin. But the Christian has the spirit living inside of them and they want to listen to what God says. That will lead us into Romans 1 today. They want to listen to what God says and that the behavior of idolatry, greediness, sexual morality, God speaks to their heart, they want to hear it, and they say, "Ah, Lord, that's not right, that shouldn't be there. And Lord, I am sorry. And sometimes if they didn't know about it, they're like, Lord, I didn't even know. I'm just getting now to know your heart. I didn't even know that it was not a good thing for me. I didn't know that wasn't part of your plan. I didn't know that that's not what was best for me. But Lord, now I know I'm going to try and follow after you. Right? So if they didn't know, that's a repentful prayer. There's a difference. It's repentance because we're already guilty. But the Christian now goes to this repentance mindset where they confess it and then they look to turn away. Someone who just does that stuff and has zero repentance at all and really could care less about God as a factor and he's not in the equation, that's what Paul is saying. Hey, listen, they're not even going to inherit the kingdom. It's really not good news for them because they're not repentant at all about it. And that's why it's really scary when a Christian can be like locked into sin, whether it be idolatry, greediness, um, sexual morality, whatever it is, when they're locked into it and it doesn't bother them anymore and they're like desensitized to it, and it's like, eh, you know, riding a bike or something. Like, it doesn't bother them. That's when it's really scary. Because that element of conviction that leads us to repentance is no longer a loud voice. It's a very small voice if it's even heard at all. So that's what Paul says, man, be on guard against that stuff. You could call yourself a Christian. But if there's really no lifestyle of confession and then repentance... It's not happening. You can use whatever label that you want. And so some people even, you know, talk about, you know, same-sex, you know, marriage now and stuff. And when when we get to heaven, God is going to be like, I don't know what that is. When I talked about marriage, I talked about a man and a woman. I, I never said there was other marriages. It might be recognized by our government, but it's not recognized in the kingdom. And Jesus was really clear about that himself. When he was approached about talking about divorce, he talked about a man and a woman being in covenant in marriage. So that marriage is. It's a covenant taken with a sexual communion that then pursues a life in Christ. That's what marriage is. So, Christian, lesbian, you know, there could be a Christian woman that struggles with that, absolutely. That's going hard and aggressive after repentance. And ask for the Lord to be redeemed. Just like, can you be a Christian liar? Well, you know, we're going to lie and say untruths, but hopefully the liar's like, oh man, I just, I have this thing. I can just lie so easily in the drop of a hat. And I just, it just comes out of me. And I'm really good at it. And I can make people believe it. Lord, that is not a good skill that I should possess. I don't know why I'm so good at it. Not everybody's good at that. Like when I'm lying and something's bothering me, it's written all over me. I can't hide it. In fact, I can't even get away from stuff. I remember just being, you know, around kids and groups of individuals and they're like getting in trouble and usually I'm laughing, you know, being immature and stupid. Um, And then I try and go do it. I'm snatched immediately. 
immediately. And I was like part of the brains behind getting the other kids in trouble and never got caught, you know, but as soon as, for whatever reason, it's just the way it is for me. I don't know. We all have our different things. But the question is, like, is there repentance there? Is there repentance there? I don't even know. Okay. Okay, so our focus this morning then. Let's talk. No, that, that's not bad. It's trying to figure out uh, what's going on here. Oh, well, here's what, Sorry, I just got back on track. Come back to me after. So then, the reason why we talked so much last week about, like, our culture. We talked a lot about culture last week. We talked a lot about um, the SCOTUS ruling. Uh, we talked about what fact, like, the 14th Amendment. We talked about these things that came into the decision, what people are talking about. The reason why we discussed about the culture's trends was so that we could be made aware of what the main issues and talking points are in our culture. It's important to know that so we can be on the same page and also bring something of value to the table instead of the Bible says it, it's wrong, you lose. It's a horrible way to talk with people. Got to be able to reason and talk about what's going on. What are they even talking about in the Supreme Courtroom? It's pretty important because they're going to be setting the laws. Because whether we know it or not, we are tempted to interpret our readings of the Bible through the lens of what culture is deciding. Real easy to do that. So if there's a huge shift in culture now to redefine what marriage is, apart from what God says, it's really tempting to read the Bible in light of that and be like, well, I I guess, you know, the Bible is old and they wrote it a long time ago and so I guess, you know, we're just going that way. That's a danger. So we want to be on guard to avoid letting the culture interpret what the Bible says, no matter how much logical sense, no matter how many people on board, no matter how many experts or studies may even be done. Either God's word is God's word or it's not. And honestly, truthfully, at the end of the day, science and God, they match up a lot. Like, some people think, like, there's this big rift, and it's just, I believe science, you know, and I believe God, and, like, there's, like, this dividing line. You do enough research into it, and you get involved enough, you're going to see that they're very much alike. Because if God is who he says he is, how can he create an entire universe and people that are totally separate from what he created? He can't. It can only lead to support it. But it takes a lot of work and a lot of time And a lot of reading. Most people don't want to do a lot of that stuff. Because meanings matter. Meanings matter. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 6, he had a particular intention in mind. Something he was trying to say. Like, if I were to send you a text or an email about whatever, so then I send it to you, and then you look at it, and you're like, okay, and then you show it to like four other people. Let's pretend it's not like a confidential thing. Show it to four or five other people. And you're like, well, what do you think he meant by this? And then someone says, like, well, I think he meant this. You know? And then somebody's like, well, no, I really think he meant that. And then somebody else here, no, I really think he meant this. Like, you get into this thing of what did, we start to create a meaning. I had a meaning and intention when I sent it. You could just ask me. 
I, the problem, though, is I with the Bible, these guys are dead, right? These guys are dead. I can't, I can't call up Paul. Hey, Paul is a deal, you know? So what God did is he gave his revealed word, and what we do is we read it and absorb it and meditate on it in light of the whole scripture. So we don't become a people that see a thing and we're like, well, I think to me it means this, and then so, but then that's what it means. That's, that's not how it goes. Paul had an intention when he wrote this. See, the hard work is to discover now. Okay, let's discover what his intentions truly were. What did he want to say? What was he trying to say? That's a lot of work, especially when they're dead. You've got to do a lot of work to figure that out because you don't want to like, you know, misrepresent it or try to communicate something into it that's not there. So what we're called to do is, one, find meaning, what these authors meant in here, Paul himself, and what our Supreme Court was called to do. They were called to look at the Constitution and specifically the 14th Amendment and specifically with regards to civil liberties and the Due Process Clause and say, okay, what was their intention when they, read, when they wrote this? What did they have in mind? They could not have possibly seen where the world would be in the 21st century, but they must have had something in mind and some intention. Now you have a group of nine Supreme Court justices that sit in a room and they're like, well, I think it meant all of this. And some other guys and women, I think it meant this. You know, so now you have this interpretation thing going on. Um, but the hard work is done in trying to figure out what is actually trying to be communicated. Figure out the intent. I, like, I never hope on Sundays you're just like, well, you know, we said this at church and so that just must be it. I hope, uh, in fact, I know there's a lot of people ask me questions after well, but it, I know you said this this morning, but it says this somewhere else in the Bible. So that's good. That's good studying. That's being a good Bible student, figuring this thing out. God can take the tough questions. He can definitely handle it. So our point last week, homosexuality, among other stuff, it's a sin. Number one. And number two, it's along with other sin. So here's our focus this week. So how does a Christian pursue purity... And love one another as though they lay their life down for them. So how does a Christian be around or be in a situation or be like across from a table or rubbing arms in a cubicle with somebody else that's totally entrenched in a life of the Bible would call sin? And of course, you're not going to you know, come right out and say, you're living in sin. And then, well, that's great. You're getting nowhere fast. Even if you're right. So what? You want to be able to communicate it. Help them come to an understanding of where they're at and what it's leading to. And like get involved. It's so easy to just come across and say, eh, it's sinful, you know, and then just take off. That's not what we're called to do. But how does a Christian do that? How do we respond? How did God even let this happen? How did we get to this point? So that's our focus this morning. So Romans 1. Let's take a look. Let's take a look. Okay, Romans 1. Let me turn there. Page 796, you got the Pew Bible. Okay, because as Christians, um, we're not typically known for engaging and patient, compassionate, and intellectually honest conversations. That's not like typically our MO. 
oh, the Christians, yeah. Especially when you're talking about sinful things. We're not typically known for being uh, kind of patient and understanding and having a lot of knowledge you know, brought to the table. Um, so we want to try and do better than that this morning. Because love can be, it could be assertive, it could be firm, it could be direct. It could also be not compromising. And it could also be honoring and showing love to the other person at the same time. But boy, that takes some real leading of the Spirit to figure out how to do that. Because some situations you've got to draw a line harder, and others you've got to be softer. And you can't approach two situations the same way. So let's figure out what's going on here. Romans 1, verse 18. We'll read it kind of quickly, and then we'll talk about a couple of things, because I want to get to the uh, response part. So it says, The wrath of God is, and Paul wrote this as well, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God's wrath is coming. Why? Because of the godlessness, removing him from the equation, and the wickedness of men. What makes them wicked? Here's what makes men wicked. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Want to know what suppress means? Good visual illustration. Suppress is this. You take like a big, uh, big huge balloon, big huge like ball, say a balloon, and you try and stuff that thing underwater, you know, and it like tries to like pop back up again. Take a, you know, the bigger one it is, the harder it is, you know, to suppress down. So you take this big balloon and you suppress that thing down, you're like, you know, trying to hold it down and then, you know, you, you, you're off to the side a little bit and, you know, it pops up over there and so you get back over it and try and suppress that thing down and it pops back over there. And that's like what the truth is. His truth is coming up no matter what. And we just try to suppress this massive, huge balloon of truth. And it's like, and then, and then what we do is we line up all kinds of guys. Okay, you hold it next. You hold it next. And, you know, we're trying to all, like, get in there. Our nation as a whole, I'm not really calling out anybody here, but I'm just going to say a nation as a whole has sinful people who like sin and want to do sin and never want to be told there even is sin. We want to put that thing down and squash that thing and suppress it. That's just what the enemy of this world wants to do. He wants to deceive. That's his goal. Steal, kill, and destroy. And he does that many times by hiding things. So you can't see them. Or distorting it. That's why his wrath is coming. By people who suppress the truth. It says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So Paul is saying here, hey, listen, there is this incredible universe out there. I mean, you just study anything in this universe to any degree, it is amazing. You give birth to anything. You watch anything give birth. It is amazing. How, how do the cells even come together and join another life? I don't even know how that happens. You got jellyfish. They got no bones, no blood. They would jack you up. Like you, how does that even work? No bones, no blood, no brain? Three Bs. There you go. They have none of that. How, how does that? I don't even know. 
And that's just like a simple, silly illustration. It is so dynamic and so intense in this world. And it's not by accident. Like this world is lacking design in some way, shape, or form. Like there wasn't a great architect and creator that designed and put this in where some things are just beautiful. It's unbelievable. So Paul's saying, hey, listen. Men see it, they recognize it, but it's, it's their choice that they want to suppress it and give reasons for it. Well, it just all came to be from a really big explosion. And from that explosion, we got slime that had some water, and we got life out of that, and so there you go. I think that takes a lot more faith, to be honest with you. But that science issue is a thing for another day. But that's what Paul's point is being. Hey, listen, it's pretty obvious what's going on and what's around in our world. So men are left without excuse. But what about people that have never heard about the gospel, never heard about Jesus Christ? How much of an excuse, you know, do they have? It's a good question. It's a real good question. Um, The answer is really not that easy. I don't know, number one. Number two, we know that God will be more than faithful when they're standing before them. I don't know how he's going to handle that. It's going to be difficult for us to reason that out. But at least we have the truth here now. And we do know that people need to hear the name of Jesus and be saved. So let, let's spread that. Let's spread it. Verse 21. For although they knew God, see, they knew about God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So that was like the position of a lot of people. There is this God, there's this creator being sort of out there, but I'm not to glorify him for a God like he is or give thanks to him for who he is and what he's doing. It's a position of a lot of people. That's not a good position to be in. It says, Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to be made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So these guys, they just set up idols. They start to build them because they wanted to worship something. And we would much rather prefer to worship something we can see and touch and feel really easy. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So what did God do? They desired to suppress Him, desired to not acknowledge Him, and they desired to worship in the way that they saw fit. How does God handle that? At some point, He says, okay, fine. That's what you want to do. Go ahead. He gave them over to it. He gave them over to it. That's a pretty sobering thing. That's really sobering. Because how bad do we want like some stuff? And we've got to think about you know, the motivation behind that. Verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen is right, right? That's the next word. <laughs> That's what happened. Exchanging the t- truth of God for a lie. Our country is just getting better and better at that. And most people around us. And they worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. Verse 26, Because of this, God they gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, 
the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. So again, the Bible's making it really clear. Hey, listen, this was not what I originally had intended. This only happened after truth got suppressed. Man wanted to go their own way, wanted to worship their own thing. And I was not going to hold them back from it. I gave them over to it. That's how you get here. This distortion then happens. So you take something good, like love and sex, and then you throw sin in the mix, and you throw distortion in the mix, we get to where we're at. Same-sex marriage, not good. You take something good, like food. You combine food with insecurity and fear, get an eating disorder pretty quickly. That's what he does. He's an expert at doing that stuff. You take irresponsibility, lack of discipline, combine it with money, hey, you become enslaved to debt. Happens real quick. He's really good at doing this stuff. We have to have the wisdom and discernment to see what's coming down the pike. That's why it's like, oh, Christianity has all these rules, you know, it's just, he's just trying to, you know, take away my individuality and my expression and who I am. It's there to protect us. He knows what's coming next. He wants to guard us from that. And he also knows we're fully capable of getting to a point where we just want nothing to do with them. We'll figure it all out on our own. It's a scary thing. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Scary stuff. To do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. They disobey their parents. It's interesting how that gets in there, right? When sin is running rampant. And that won't work as a parent, right? Like, you're full of sin. See, the Bible says, like, you're disobeying. You can't parent that way. But it's something like, you know, to see and take note of. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a slippery slope. It says, you therefore have no excuse. The Christians, he's talking to Christians here in Rome. You Christians have no excuse You pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. So he's saying, hey, listen, don't use all the stuff I just told you to start going around and condemning people and calling them out in their sin. That's not exactly how to go about it. To recognize it and help somebody see it to get them to turn from it is much different than calling you out in it. It's a lot different. It says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and you do the same things, do you think you escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? What leads us towards repentance? His kindness. So you mean if I'm really like harsh with somebody and argue really well and I'm super persuasive, is that going to get them to repent? Not a good chance. They might. It's just not a good chance. 
It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immorality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So it's pretty sobering stuff, right? And what it does is it shows how we get to the place where we're at. We get to a place, maybe we just start suppressing truth. Then you just start loving, doing, you know, what you want to do. And then sooner or later, start to worship whatever we want to worship. And then by that point, he's long gone out of the equation. And then what actually happens is we start to call evil good. And saying, hey, it's okay. It's all good. It's a really scary thing. And then if you get enough smart people around it to agree, then like it has legitimacy. And then we go for it. Scary stuff. Scary stuff. All right, two points, and then um, a couple of familiar things that I think you've heard that hopefully I'll give you some responses that might help. So two points, um, because here is the question. How do Bible-believing Christians stick to, submit to, and be advocates for? So stick to, submit to, and be advocates for. We're called to do that. Stick to. Stick to the Word. Stick to truth. Submit to. We're called to submit to in our life. Be advocates for. That means we actually stand in the gap, and like, yeah, we put in our two cents. Because they're trying to be advocates for his kingdom and having his kingdom come and his will be done. So stick to, submit to, be advocates for truth, yet at the same time display a love and compassion that will lay its life down. That's what we're called to do. Stand for truth, but a love that will lay its life down. Okay, two things. One is, I hope we come into any conversation, in any situation with people and with relationships, knowing that, number one, it's a level playing field. It's even ground at the cross. Nobody's better. I'm no better than you. You're no better than me. You might have more of a history, more whatever. I might have more whatever. La-di-da. We got sin going on. This is not an issue of comparing who's got the worst story. And I'm not saying that to be insensitive. So please don't hear it that way. I'm saying that to show that no matter where we came from, There is definitely still hope, and there is a God who's big enough and able to change our lives forever. Absolutely. I put down, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short, we all still struggle with sin. There is a humility and a compassion when that's really understood. That creates a pretty humble and compassionate Christian. We're like, whew, man. In fact, I, just during worship time today, I was just, uh, God just brought some stuff to the forefront of my mind, and I'm like, God, I am so sorry for that. That is like unbelievably ugly and sinful. I, I don't even know what was the deal. You know? Like, it was just ugly. It's ugly. And I even wrote down some stuff, because sometimes this helps people. Um, where did I put down um, some stuff that sometimes... Yeah, here we go. I put down, uh, sometimes we're wired and molded towards specific sins, some stronger than others. I said, because of my genes, I had to write some of these down. Because I think sometimes people get the wrong view of me. So I just want to make sure, level playing field. 
because of my genes, my upbringing, combination of the two, and those two things are important because those are also major proponents of sexual preference. Uh, Because of my genes, my upbringing, I am pulled strongly to be self-centered. That is like, wow. Um, And and marriage brings a lot of that, although you can see it a lot better. If I was single, it would be a lot harder to see. take me longer probably to, to see that. But marriage helps you see it a lot. Because it's just, it's, marriage is just a death to yourself. Like, that's the author. You're dying for their sake. That's a rough deal. But a good deal. So, so I'm strongly, you know, pulled to be self-centered. I struggle with fits of anger. I can just see that with him. He, oh, Jared's like calm, you know. He's easy going, man. You have no idea. You have no idea. I have no idea. No, you know, growing up and just like these fits. And when I was younger, fits of rage and anger, and I would just run out of the house, hitting my mom and stuff, like just crazy stuff. Like, where does it even come from? You're so little. Like, you're so little, you don't even know. And that's just sad even to, oh, it's just ugly, you know? When I'm hurting her heart, but it's just like, it's a horrible thing. So, so, but that stuff tries to like rear its head, you know what I mean? And stuff comes up and situations happen and it's like there's a temptation and just like, you know, just like explode on that thing. And it's like, nah. And it's amazing how much it has changed because, I mean, pretty much most people here, most people that know me, they're like, oh my gosh, that's, well, you're so patient and understanding. Man, you have no idea how far from that I have been my, almost my entire life. Not a clue. This is just what you see. Don't judge. Don't judge that. Like, you have no idea. People love doing that stuff. So, so whenever I meet people, it's like, man, I'm an, I don't know anything about, you know, some people, you know, people might look a certain way or dress or do whatever. Man, I got no idea. I'm not making a call here on anything. Let's just get to know you. You know, so I struggle with, absolutely. Uh, and this is not to draw attention on myself. This is just to show you, hey, um, there's a danger with somebody talking all the time in a church and in front of people and like they, on a pedestal. So I want to make sure I knock that one down and then also be honest and vulnerable with you and then you know, we'll go to the next stuff. So it's not to draw attention to it. Um, I'm pulled strongly to be self-centered, struggle with fits of anger. Um, I struggle with being impatient. That can lead to harshness. Where it's just like, I just get impatient and I don't communicate that frustration well along the way and whew, then I get harsh real fast. And someone's like, whoa. You know, so sometimes I even come to school and like a class with kids and maybe something happened like yesterday or that morning. And, Whoa, Mr. Murphy, what's going on? You know, yeah, what is? That's not good. Uh, struggle with fear of man. You know, opinion, perception. What are people thinking? What's going on? That one's not totally squashed yet in my life. It's getting better. But it's not squashed yet. The enemy still tries to bring all that stuff back in there. What are people thinking? What are they saying? If you do this, if you do that. That's a real deal battle thing. And so I got to like, Lord, I don't want that stuff there. I want your mind. I just want, I just want you to be pleased. And I just want you to work through me. That's all that matters. And you've already said that I'm valuable and loved in your sight. Help that to just be enough. Help that to be enough. Because that's what it's called to be. Obviously, my faith level is not there yet, so help it be there. Right? These are real prayers. how we approach a Christian life. Level playing field. If someone's involved in communication like that with God, and then they come in contact with somebody who's just struggling with another sin, they're very much less likely to be like, ah, oh, you're just a sinner, you shouldn't do it. That's like not even on the radar. 
The calling is to invest and get to know and like help them out. And if they don't want to give, they don't want to budge and they're just stuck there, then you know, there's not much you could do. Do the best that you can and then pray for them after, hopefully. But if they'll allow discussion, man, then just keep going with it. Okay, so that was point one, a level playing field. Um, the only one unique thing about homosexuality is it does mention in the Bible um, you know, that the nation was destroyed for, you know, in Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, you know, that was highlighted and that was brought up. And, and there isn't, um, there's, there's also other nations in the Bible where sins are, are pointed out, um, but that's one that gets a lot of attention. Um, idolatry was another sin, you know, that where nations, you know, got taken over for. So, um, but really, the sin is sin with everything else. It's just our culture is re- choosing to redefine people based on their sexual preference. You are worth so much more than who you like sexually. Point two. When the glory of God ceases to be our supreme treasure, distortions are present. When the glory of God ceases to be our supreme treasure, distortions are present. That was the whole point of the Romans passage. When we start to not treasure and value everything that God is and what he wants to do through us, distortions are allowed to come into the mix. Well, I could do this. I, I could think that's way. It's okay if I do this. God will Some things he's made really clear. We've we got to go after aggressively even if we have no idea how God provide, could provide or make it happen. So he's called to be really our number one treasure in our life. And so when that starts to fade, distortions then come in. But God has to be valuable in order for us to know his will. Otherwise, we will exchange his will and glory for ours, like what happened in Romans. People aren't exchanging glory for glory. That's what they did. I'm going to exchange uh, my worship and glory for him mm, for myself. Because I want to do anything I want to do whenever I want to do it. And nobody can tell me otherwise. That's exchanging glory for glory. And when we do that, that's a really dangerous place and just leads towards God just giving you over to a depraved mind. So we've got to be really careful about that stuff. Because... If he's valuable in our treasure, we're going to be able to know and understand his will. We're not going to be guilty of suppressing the truth. And as a nation, we're really good at suppressing the truth, especially if it looks anything like the Bible or Christianity. So those are the two things, two points at least from that passage. One is that there's a loving playing field. Two, when the glory of God ceases to bear supreme treasure, distortions are present. So a couple of questions, and then here's some responses. Is there a kind of compassion and understanding that they are struggling with a sin without their Savior? Is whoever we're interacting with and talking about same-sex marriage and all this stuff, and any sin in general, is there some kind of compassion and understanding there that they are struggling and trying to battle this thing, and they're doing it completely apart from their Savior? They don't even know who He is. That He's not even there. That there's even another way. I hope we enter the conversations like that. That makes us a lot less to just, you know, be ready for a fight. And then the second thing to think about is what is my supreme treasure? You know, those are two thoughts just to think about in regards to those two points. Here's stuff you've heard. 
people are born this way, they don't have a choice. Gay is the new black. You've heard that one, right? So how do we respond? People are born this way, they do not have a choice. Um, and, and I was on, I think it was Time Magazine or Newsweek not too long ago, gay is the new black. Uh, meaning the discrimination that was against the uh, black people for, you know, ever, really until the 60s, and still is present to this day, um, that same kind of discrimination happens against same-sex couples, and so now, hence, gays and new black, right? And so then, um, the argument typically goes, depending on whoever you're talking with, um, well, you know, a black person, hey, they were born with that color of skin, like, there's, and, and there's no doubt, you can prove it, you can see it, it's there, they didn't even have a choice in the matter of any kind. Whereas a homosexual person would also say, well, I was also, you know, born with it too. You know, I'm destined, I'm supposed to be this way. Or a transgender person, I know I was born with this equipment, but I feel like I'm supposed to be like something else. And so they get a surgery and do a thing and they do something else. Right? A couple of things. One thing is this, and we can't get into all these now, but write them down and check them out later. This is good. This helps us to engage a culture in an intellectually honest way. There's five studies, major studies, that were done linking sexuality um, and sexual preference. The LeVay Brain Study. LeVay Brain. The Bailey Pillared Twins. Bailey Pillared Twins. So LeVay Brain, Bailey Pillared Twins. The Haley X chromosome study and the Savage pheromone study. So LeVay brain, Bailey pillar twins, Haley X chromosome, Savage pheromone. Now the first one there is really the most recent, most interesting is that um, that guy basically went in and he found a part of um, the brain that was actually um, a little bit smaller um, and actually homosexual men are more the, the size of, like, women's. And so, um, you know, people took that and really ran with that and said, oh, you know, this is a, um, you know, something that per- supports a, a gay gene and, and all this stuff. And um, him, he himself said, hey, listen, don't, and he was a gay man himself who actually did the study. LeVay is a gay guy. And he said, you know, um, don't take this study to mean that I have now proven that there's a gay gene that have proven that there's some biological thing that happens to somebody, and it definitely confirms that they are not homosexual. It's interesting that he even said that. Um, but in all those studies, and it's interesting in all those five studies, because if you're ever going to talk with anybody and have intellectual discussion about things that matter and facts, you could say, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but in such and such study, they said this happened, so I, I don't know, you know. Oh, really? You know, and that can get to a good discussion. Um, but in none of those has there ever been found that there is a definite genetic gene of something that says, hey, you're just born this way. Done deal. There's nothing you could ever do about it. You're just always stuck there. Not at all. Even, even if there was, do you think that God would be big enough to transform that? I mean, the question really is, how big is the God? If he's only like big enough to handle things that are only dealt with in DNA and genes, he can't touch that, but he could touch other stuff. I'm not quite sure what kind of God that is. I don't really know that as the God of the Bible. Is he big enough? Is he big enough? 
So you could say, if in that conversation, people are born this way, don't have a choice. Well, really, there's like five studies. I, look, I didn't look at all of them, but I looked a couple things. Here's some highlights. Then you could say, and honestly, you know what? I do think the God that I believe in is big enough. And they're going to, you know. Um, and here's then what you could do. You could say, you know what? I know that he's changed me. I was a totally different person before. I had different likes, different desires. I was like, and if somebody that you knew, you knew, you'd say, you knew me. You knew who I was. I was totally different. I went after different things. I behaved in a different way. I even thought differently. So he's completely changed my life. And now you have your turn to tell your testimony. So it didn't happen in church before the baptism. So, like, that's not... The idea is to get to tell it to people and share it in real life. The problem, though, is if there's a bunch of Christians without a testimony going on, then we don't have much to talk about. Then we get to an intellectual discussion of who knows more, and that usually doesn't go anywhere good fast. So, man, get in that relationship with God and get in encounters with Him, take leaps of faith, and take risks. For whatever He's asking for, He will develop a story and a life which will turn into a testimony that now you can use with somebody else. So it's not theoretical anymore. It's empirical. It's happening. It's real. Stuff matters. So how about another one? Um, why should your religious convictions be imposed on everybody? For that one, right? Why should your religious convictions be imposed on everyone? Here's the thing. Follow up. Here's a way you could respond. One, all laws discriminate and impose convictions on people. Every law does. As soon as you make a law and make a declaration, you're immediately discriminating against somebody. So a current ruling and same-sex marriage. Like, you can't be 13 years old and get a same-sex marriage. You automatically discriminate those who are 15 and younger. It's discrimination. It also discriminates against polygamy, having multiple wives. You just discriminated against that group. You just discriminated against polyamory. Polyamory is like having an open relationship. Well, you kind of like, we're like together, but you can also, you know, have a relationship with someone, so bring them home, you know, and then maybe you want to have a marriage like that. It's not quite like polygamy where you're like connected to them, but polyamory is a little more free. Bestiality. You just discriminated against those people that would choose to be in a romantic uh, sexual relationship with animals. Right? You just discriminated that. Like if you want, as soon as laws happen, you discriminate. As soon as they happen. So all laws are discriminatory. Absolutely. So convictions and discrimination is going to happen. So now the question is, how is the right way to do that? Where is the right way to do that? And then a better question is, what did the founding fathers, the writers of the Constitution, what do they have in mind when they're talking about rights and discrimination? What was the meaning that they intended? Not what am I trying to read into it, but what were they actually trying to say? That, that takes a lot more work. That can lead to a much better discussion with somebody as well. One last one. Why is it a bad thing that thousands 
of same-sex couples can now have a legitimate marriage recognized by the government? It's another question. You'll probably hear, maybe have seen or heard or read. Why is it a bad thing that thousands of same-sex couples can now have a legitimate marriage recognized by the government? It's a good question, right? Why is that bad that a nation has choose to recognize all forms of love? Your possible response could be, well, if that's what the Constitution writers wanted to do and say, then is freedom of expression of love ever have boundaries? And if it doesn't, how far do we go? And how is it right to stop there? Possible response. Okay? Then, the conversation maybe goes a little bit further, and you can talk personally. Now you have an opportunity to share your faith a little bit more. Well, personally, I do believe my worldview is different. I think that there's a thing called sin in the world. And I think like we're all you know, guilty of it. I got my stuff, and then start to share your testimony. Right? Because most discussions with people are only going to get so far with facts and the Constitution and the amendment. You're only going to get so far with most people. Most people, one, don't really care. Um, and then two, it's, it's just, most people don't have a lot of time to be looking and reading about all that stuff. Most people, when you're talking with them, it gets down to one-on-one. Okay, let's just talk about stuff here. Let's see where you're coming from, see where I'm coming from. And then we get a chance to share. All right, so here's the bottom line, and we'll close with this. We are called to confront, but also adapt. We are called to be separate, but culturally participate. We are in this world, but we are not of it. We are called to delight in truth, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13.6. We're supposed to delight in the truth. Truth is that God calls behaviors and attitudes sin. And we're called to delight in those things. Sometimes we just are apologetic and make excuses for it and avoid it. It is possible to live out biblical firmness and maintain an honest love for his people. It's possible. It's not impossible. It takes some work, though. Maintaining firmness and standing for truth does not mean Using sound bites of other people. That's like a really famous one. You know, somebody would just throw a quick video at somebody and say, hey, you know, this is... there could be some value in that, but some people just resort to that. Sound bites of other people doesn't really help that much. Leaving a rant on a social media outlet doesn't usually hold much weight or water. Continued arguments and hostility in the name of apologetics is not good either. Some people are really combative and argumentative in the name of apologetics. Apologetics being the fancy term for sharing your faith. So it's like I can argue with you and kind of be difficult with you and just call it apologetics. That's, that's not really it either. It does mean that there is this deep love and appreciation for a love of the person who is so stuck that they can't even see it, nor even know that there's another way. Our conversations may be firm, assertive, may be unwavering, and I hope that they're also focused on hearing the heart of the person. 
Creation has fallen. Deceit from an enemy is rampant. And truth is almost impossible to see in some places. Isn't that true? So when we meet and engage with same-sex couples and we're reading about stuff, hopefully we can be a people that knows how to engage the heart with spirit-led truth, wisdom, and insight. Hopefully we can be known for that. We can engage a heart with spirit-led, spirit-led truth, wisdom, and insight. It takes a lot of work on our, on our end. It means like, you know, we'll have to sacrifice you know, some of our show time and not watch our show or not like read our paper or like do our thing. Like, no, I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to, for the sake of somebody else, that's why I'm going to do it. Even if I never even get into the conversation with anybody. I still think there might be value because maybe sometime I might have a conversation with somebody about it. That means you're holding some people really high. And if you're interested, there's a really good book um, about, um, there's lots of good books, but um, this book was uh, it's really good, the way she talked about things. Um, she was a um, college professor, English college professor. Uh, she was on a campus, I think it was in Maryland, I forget the school. Um, she was a chair of the department. And uh, she was one of the leaders in the LGBT community. And um, she writes this article, uh, I believe it was in a paper, and a local pastor found it. And uh, no, the local pastor wrote an article, she didn't like it. So she got a hold of him, and she's like, you know, it just went off on him. And he just asked her over for dinner. And so what she does is she walks through the entire time. It was almost two years, I think it was, coming over for dinner, just hanging out. And the pastor's like, he didn't. This is sin. Well, if she asked, he told her. But he never just went out and just went after her. And it was so cool. So then she wrote down like all her thoughts as it was going on and things that drew her in and things that turned her off. But there was always stuff in the back of her mind going. It was very interesting. Um, so, to fa- well, I can't tell you the end in case you read it. So you just got to read it. Um, so here's the book. Um, it kind of gives away a little bit, but... Not a lot. The title is The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne. It's a good book. She's got an amazing story. It's pretty interesting. Um, So, next week, we get back into um, John and the book of John, talking about Jesus, who he is, what he's saying. And... um, I don't know, I guess unless something else you know, comes up this week with this. But it's an important issue because it draws in marriage, it draws in relationships, it draws in sin and talking about sin, having us confront, okay, homosexuality is sin, but also having us confront our own sin. And do we really, like, are we really engaged in a lifestyle of repentance? Because that's really what the Christian life is about, a lifestyle of repentance and communion and in connection with our Father. Um, so hopefully it was helpful, and if you got more questions, um, please ask, fire them at me, I'm available for them, and um, we'll see what God does, because there definitely is an enemy, he wants to be deceitful, and he wants to call sin good, it's just what he wants to do, and he's doing a pretty good job so far, so hopefully the Christian can find it within themselves to stand for truth, love a person, find value in them, and also find how the gospel can come right in there and save their lives. All right, so let's stand and close in prayer because that went a little bit long.